This morning as we walk through the book of Matthew, we come to a passage that I, I, I found while I was studying this. I think this passage is of critical importance to our faith. I don't know that you'll find it uh, listed in any list of foundational texts. Like if you don't understand this one, you're not a real Christian or anything like that. But I think this passage, it's a familiar passage, the story of the judgment of the nations, the separation of the sheep and the goats. I think how we understand this passage will tell us something about us. I think how you read, how you understand this passage will teach you what you really think about Jesus. What you think about how Christianity works. It will tell you as a Christian what you really are building your life on and trusting in. This passage deals with, it's at the intersection of What do our good deeds tell us about our standing before God? The good things we do, the good things we fail to do. What do they tell us about our standing, where we're at with God? By the way, the passage, um, if you want to turn there in your Bible or if you're on, uh, if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 988 of a, of a Bible and that might be in a rack in front of you. I'd love for you to have one of those open today and we'll turn a, a, another place as well. I want to tell you where this passage fits in the context of the book of Matthew. We're at the end of the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus's long uh, sermon dealing with the end times and what's coming and, and the end times The end times, God's plan for how he's going to bring this world of ours to the end he's already prescribed. It culminates in the second coming of Christ. Jesus has talked about it in this conversation he's having with his disciples. Here's what he said it's going to look like someday. This is chapter 24, verse 30. Jesus said, then, that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's the second coming. And that's three or four sermons ago for us. But everything Jesus has said between that verse and what we're going to talk about today was something of a parenthesis. Jesus described his second coming, then he called a time out. And he said, now, because you won't know when that's coming, I want to talk to you about how to live ready. Okay, don't wait and hope you're ready someday, right before you stand before the Lord. Live ready right now. And Jesus has been talking about readiness since that verse. And where we pick up today is right here. Chronologically speaking, we're going to pick up right here. Because what Jesus talks about today, the judgment of the nations, will happen immediately after Jesus' second coming. So that's where it sort of fits in the the chronological role of of the last days. 
Before we start, before we read it, I want to say a couple things about this judgment we're going to read about today. First, if you understand what Jesus did for you at the cross and you trust in Christ for your salvation, the judgment we're going to read about today is not your judgment. This will be about people who survive through the tribulation. This will not be you and me standing there. But that doesn't mean we can't learn how Jesus separates folks from reading this. The second thing I want to tell you that this, about this passage before we read it, it's often called the parable of the sheep and the goats, and I don't like that. Because what we read today, what we're going to read is not a parable. A parable is a made-up story that didn't ever really happen and won't happen, and that made-up story teaches a real point, a real lesson. What we're about to read is a prediction of something that's absolutely going to happen. It's not a story about sheep and goats. It's a story about people who get separated, some onto Jesus' right and some onto Jesus' left. And the ones on Jesus' right are going to live with him forever and ever and ever, and the ones on his left are headed for eternal punishment. And it's real, real, real. This is the difference. This illustrates the difference between eternal life and eternal punishment. It's really, really important. And we're going to see today what makes the difference between somebody that Jesus says, this is one of my people, and somebody that says, makes Jesus say, this is not. Let's read our passage today. Click me there, Sid, and there we go. I'll go ahead one more. This is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Right after the second coming of, of Christ, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as, the, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
And then these will go away into an eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And there is the passage. Jesus begins this passage by saying that at his second coming, all of the nations of the earth will be gathered and separated. They're gathered in mass, in whole groups, but the judgment is individual. They're separated by individual. Who does the separating in this passage? Who is the one who is the Son of Man, who comes in His glory, who sits on His glorious throne? Who is that? What's His name? That is Jesus. By the way, He sits on His glorious throne, which apparently, according to this picture, looks like your great-grandmother's dining room set. That's His glorious throne. That's the best this guy could come up with, I guess. I don't know. Uh, That's Jesus. Jesus, notice, this is one of the few places He does this. Jesus call, Look what Jesus calls himself in verse 34 in a couple of places. He calls himself the king. Jesus is the king. A few days from when he tells this story, they're going to mock him for believing that. They're going to put a fake crown on his head made out of thorns and a purple robe. They're going to put a sign on, above his head. What's the sign going to say? It's the king of the Jews. Because they don't believe he is who he says he was. It doesn't matter how many people don't believe it. Jesus is the king. And he's going to separate people based on what they do with him. I want you to notice before we really dive into this thing, one last thing in verse 46. This is the last verse of the Olivet Discourse right here. I want you to notice the duration of the separation. Once Jesus separates people into the people that are his and the people are not, how long will they stay separated? Forever and ever and ever, eternal punishment or eternal life. It's a pretty big deal. Now the question this passage really asks or begs us to to look at is then what is the criteria for that separation? What is it about me? What is it about you that will make Jesus say one day, either you are on my right, one of my sheep headed for eternal life, or you're on my left like a goat headed for eternal punishment? What is the criteria for that separation? It's the most important question we can know the answer to. And it's really easy to read this passage by itself, isolated from the rest of the book of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, and come away with a very bad answer to that question. It's really easy to get the wrong idea from reading this passage. The wrong idea would sound something like this. This is what I'm about to share is incorrect. Okay, so if you tune me in and tune me out, I want you to know, don't don't write this part down and keep it in your Bible. The wrong Understanding of this passage would go like this. Well, the people Jesus put on his right, there's this laundry list of good things they did. So the reason these people on the right got separated for eternal life is because they did all those good things. They fed people, they clothed people, they did did all those things. And Jesus said, it's just like you did it for me. So if you do these things, you get eternal life. Whereas the people who got separated onto this side, they didn't do those things, which is true. 
But that's the reason they got sent to eternal punishment because they didn't do those good things. If that were the right understanding of this passage, here would be the lesson. Holy smokes, we had better get busy doing some good things before it's our turn to stand before the king. We better hope I have done enough of these good things or else he might put me over there. I want to say five things about that understanding of this passage. Those five things are wrong, 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 wrong. It's not what this passage teaches. It's not what it's for. And I don't want you to walk out of here this morning without understanding why. What I want to try to show from this passage is that these two groups of people get put in the groups where they're put based on who they are, not based on what they do. So, we better take a look at who these groups are, what Jesus says about them. We'll start with those on Jesus' right, the, the sheep. Who are the sheep? Jesus says three things that I think are the most important things about the sheep, those separated and put on his right. In that passage, Jesus calls them the blessed and righteous adopted children of God. That's who the sheep are. The reason why they're put on Jesus' right is because they are the blessed, righteous, adopted children of God. Here's how we see that. I'm going to do the, he doesn't really use the word adopted. So I'll do that one first. What he says in verse 34, the king is going to say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Who gets an inheritance? Do, Sam Walton was a very wealthy man, right? Did he have lots of people that worked for him at Walmart and Sam's clubs all over the country? is the way his inheritance worked. The people who do the best job working for Sam Walton, is that who gets the family inheritance? Is that how that worked? No. What do you have to do to get Sam Walton's inheritance? You have to be born into Sam Walton's family or adopted into Sam Walton's family. I am still available for that adoption if they are willing, but they probably are not. Right? So the kingdom is an inheritance for the children of God. That's why I say they are adopted. But I want to spend most of our time this morning talking about these two things right here. Jesus calls them blessed. And then twice in the passage, once in 37 and once at the very end, he calls those folks on his right, the righteous. And if Jesus is going to call these folks, the blessed and the righteous, that has to fit in Jesus' definition of who the blessed and who the righteous are, right? In other words, if there's another place, even in the book of Matthew, where Jesus tells us who a blessed person is and what they receive, and then later he calls someone else blessed, don't those two things have to match? He can't say, for example, in chapter 5, here's, what a here's who is blessed by my Father. And then... Here in the Olivet Discourse, chapter 25, say, here's who is blessed by my Father and not and have, be talking about different people. Does that make sense? 
I want to show you this morning, we're going to take a little field trip in the book of Matthew to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to show you who the blessed people are and what they receive. We studied it a long time ago when we studied the very first sermon Jesus ever preached in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He started in a very familiar manner. You'll recognize these little sayings. We call them the Beatitudes. It's so important to Matthew's argument of his book, he makes this be the first words Jesus ever preached. They go like this. Very first sermon Jesus ever preached began this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Isn't that what we're talking about in chapter 25? Who inherits the kingdom? In chapter 25, Jesus said the blessed people inherit the kingdom. In chapter 5, you know what Jesus said? The blessed people inherit the kingdom. The blessed people will be comforted. The blessed people will inherit the earth. The blessed people will be satisfied. It's the same people, right? So who's the blessed people? That's the question. How do we get this blessing? Matthew, Jesus' very first sermon starts this way. The blessed person is someone who's poor in spirit. Here's what that means. Poor is a financial word. In Jesus' day, the poor were not just not as well off as everyone else. Somebody who was poor in Jesus' day was destitute, unable to take care of him or herself or their family, completely dependent on others. To be poor in spirit is to be poor spiritually before God, to understand my greatest need is to be okay with God. Poor in spirit is understanding I'm bankrupt before God. There's nothing in me I could present to God that could make him think like I'm, I'm of, a, of a good enough level to be acceptable to him. That's poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt and destitute before God. That's step one to being blessed. Understanding your poorness of spirit. If you understand your greatest need for all of eternity will be to be found acceptable to God and your poorness of spirit tells you you are not there, Initially, that should cause a sense of mourning. That should break your heart. Oh my goodness, there is a God, a holy and righteous, perfect God, and I need to be declared okay by Him, and I'm not. That breaks my heart, causes me to mourn my own spiritual condition. So, so far, the blessed person is poor in spirit and mourns that. Now, the logical next step should be this. If my greatest need is to be found okay with God, and I know I'm not, and that breaks my heart, you know what we, the logical next step would probably be? Well, then I'm going to get myself to a place where I'm no longer poor in, in spirit. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do gooder. Then maybe I won't be poor in spirit. But the third beatitude, the third part of this definition of the blessed person blows that out of the water because the third beatitude says the blessed person is meek. Your Bible might say gentle, which is a fine uh, translation of the word, but it doesn't just mean like really, really nice or something. Here's what meekness is. 
Meekness is a, an understanding that I have no ability or a refusal to forward my own position. My illustration for meekness is always a good horse. Right? A horse is not weaker than, than, than the rider. Right? There's really no time where that horse, if it really wanted to, couldn't buck you off and stomp you in the middle of next week. But it decides to not forward its own power to stay meek or gentle. The blessed person is meek. Here's what that means. My greatest need is to be found acceptable by God, but my poorness of spirit lets me know I'm not. I mourn that it breaks my heart. But then the blessed person has to understand there's nothing I can do to forward that position. I can't ever get myself to where I'm okay in God's sight by what I do. Well, that's a bad position to be in. And then the fourth beatitude, the last one we have time for this morning, says this, the blessed person is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. I'm not good enough. I fall short. There's nothing in me that would make me okay with God that breaks my heart, and I know there's nothing I can do to fix it, but I still have a hunger and a thirst for this righteousness I can't ever achieve, attain, hold on to. That's the first part of the picture of a blessed person, somebody who gets there. That sounds like a terrible place to be in, always hungering and thirsting and striving for something I can't ever get. You know what the gospel is, the good news? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, he gives us what we can never attain, standing before God. And this word right here, Righteousness. Jesus said of the sheep, they are the blessed, what was the next thing I said? The blessed what children of, adopted children of God? The blessed righteous children of God. Now according to Jesus' own definition of being blessed, the first step is understanding I can't be righteous. I'm poor in spirit. I'm broke before God. So how do I get to be righteous if the first step of being blessed is understanding I can't ever be righteous? I have to be given righteousness that I can never achieve. Jesus said later in this Sermon on the Mount, he talked about righteousness. He told people, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you are never, ever, ever, no way. And the Greek could not be stronger there. Could never, you're never going to get into heaven unless you're way more righteous than the best rule followers on earth. The only way that's possible is if we get given to us a righteousness that we do not achieve. In the book of Romans, Paul writes this, but to the one who does not work for his or her own righteousness, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited as righteous. You want to you see the miracle of miracles God does right here. 
a holy and righteous and perfect God declares ungodly people to be righteous. How do we get declared, even though we're ungodly, how do we get declared to be righteous by a holy God? By faith. We're gifted. Righteousness. It's not earned. Okay, back to our passage. Jesus, if Jesus calls these folks blessed and righteous, it has to fit his definition of what that means. They're blessed because they know they need saved. They're hungry and thirsting after a righteousness they can't achieve, but it's given to them by faith. It has to be that. Now look how they react. Jesus says, this is going to happen. I'm going to gather people at the nations of the earth. I'm going to separate them one at a time. I'm going to read this laundry list of things these people do. And listen, if this is a giant court case, when Jesus says, you fed the poor, you gave clothing to those who needed clothes, all that stuff, don't think of that as the reason they're... The, they're getting into heaven. This is, the, this is the penalty phase of the trial. You know what I mean by that? This is not calling witnesses and collecting evidence to see who's guilty or innocent. That's already done. We have a confession in this case. This is evidence that determines not the duration of punishment, but the level, and not the duration of reward, but the level. And to enter evidence into this case, Jesus reads this long list of stuff these sheep have done. Notice their reaction. Notice their reaction. Jesus says, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me, all that stuff. You, by the way, did Jesus say that they healed the sick? No, because people don't do that. They visited, they comforted the sick. There's a difference. Notice their reaction. Then the righteous will answer him. And do they say, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that does sound like me. I did all those great things. Is that what they say? You know what they say? They basically say, Lord, I don't think you should be saying that about me. So they're standing before a holy and righteous God and he's calling them righteous. And it's almost like they're surprised they're shocked and they say, no, 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 Lord. I don't think it's true. I never saw you hungry and gave you food. I never saw you in prison and visited you. I never did those things. They're surprised to hear it. Apparently they had done them, but they certainly didn't do them thinking it made them righteous before God. They didn't even do them thinking it would earn them reward. We'll talk about why they did it. Later, Jesus said, just as you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Who are the least of these? Eschatologically, in time speaking, I think this will be about people who helped Jews during the tribulation. But we can learn... How can we help the least of these? I don't think we can help Jews during the tribulation. 
You know the least of these are in the household of faith? Think of somebody who knows the gospel, who knows Jesus as Savior and is still forgotten, left behind or outcast even by the church. What is it that might cause people in the church, even our church, to disregard a certain Christian? Can you think of some things? Might be financial. Um, could, be, could be racial or ethnic. It could be a position in the community. It could be the sins they still struggle with. Jesus said, the only evidence I'm going to enter that my verdict has been correct is that you treated the least of these the way I treated the least of these and it's just like you did that for me or on my behalf you acted like me toward folks like that now I want to contrast their reaction. Now we're going to talk about the goats. Those who are separated, put on Jesus' left, they're headed for eternal punishment. I want to contrast the reaction of the sheep to this trial to the reaction of the goats to this trial. What's interesting to me, you know how the sheep were surprised that they were called righteous? The goats are surprised that they're called unrighteous. Both groups are surprised. The goats can't believe Jesus would say this about them. Lord, we're not guilty of these things you're saying about us. And it's really interesting to look at the charges. When Jesus says, you know why you're, you know why you're not going to eternal life? Does he say, because you're, you're murderers? You are terrorists. You are will, you will sexual deviants. Does, does he charge them with any of the big ones? No. You know, heaven is not populated by the best people. Hell is not populated by the worst people. It's not how this works. He says... You wouldn't serve the least of these. Now their, their real problem? You know what the goat's real problem is? They never got to the place where they understood they were poor in spirit. Destitute before God. They're standing before a holy God and they cannot believe God would have the audacity to tell them they're not good enough to get into heaven. They didn't mourn their spiritual condition because they think they've got a good one. They weren't meek. They forwarded their own spiritual position. I think they're telling the absolute truth when they say, Lord, if we would have seen you hungry, we would have given you something to eat. If we would have seen you needing clothes, Jesus, we would have given you something to wear. You got to believe us. Do you think they would have? Absolutely they would have. You know why? Because there would have been something in it for them. 
you know what kept them from serving the least of these? I would have served you. I just won't serve them. Because I'm above them. It always feels better to feel better. I don't want to help them. They might make it to my level. And if we do this in the church, I would help them. If they achieve, if they had my level of righteousness, I would give them some help. We'll always help the righteous poor. By the way, I have news for you. There aren't any. See, I would, I would have helped that person, but they got themselves into that position. You know, they're, they're divorced. They're an unwed mother. They got themselves addicted. So, whereas the sheep don't see any difference between their poorness of spirit and my poorness of spirit before a holy and righteous God, we're on the level playing field. And Jesus says, that's the folks who are blessed. The people who understand their own real position before God. And this evidence is offered in court only to prove the verdict that had already been arrived at. Go to the last one, said. Here's what this passage teaches us. Every single person on earth is either a blessed, righteous, adopted child of God separated like a sheep, or they're in a cursed, lost goat headed for eternal punishment. Who is who? The blessed, righteous person is somebody who understands fully. There is never one second where of my own righteousness I am ever any closer in a meaningful way to the righteousness I need to impress God, to be on, really on God's side on the righteousness scale. I'm poor in spirit, always destitute, penniless before God. That breaks my heart because I know I need to be acceptable to God. My meekness keeps me from forwarding my own position before God and trying to climb that ladder to present my righteousness to Him. Uh, Brian Clark, a few weeks ago, said, that we, you remember the old shake and bake commercials? Remember shake and bake? What's the little girl say? It's shake and bake. And what? And I helped. He says, that's all of us. That's what we want to say to God. Yes, I'm in heaven, and I helped. No, you didn't. The blessed person understands there's my measly, filthy righteousness cannot add one tiny bit to my salvation. Because I can either bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ gifted to me, or I can show God my filthy righteousness. Which one do you want? I will take his, but if I take his, it's all his. And 
if I want to use mine, it has to be all mine. The blessed person who under, is someone who understands. It's all him. The cursed person is under, someone who's still trying to help. And then this passage is a good reminder that those who really understand they didn't help, who understand my standing before God is 100% grace. Not 95, not 50-50, not 99 and 44 one hundredths percent. Him and a little bit of me because I helped. The person who understands 100% of my standing before God is a gift of his grace. The person who has received and understands that grace is someone who freely gives grace and mercy. I no longer see a meaningful separation between me and my sin and someone else and theirs in their standing before God. Isn't this why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much? Because he went to Matthew's house and he had a big party with tax collectors and sinners. The worst of the worst. As soon as Matthew was converted, he immediately became, in the Jews' eyes, the least of these. They hated Jesus because he, he met a woman at a well, and he loved on this woman at a well who was with her fifth different guy, and he, she wasn't married to him. He saved a woman who that very day had been caught in the act of adultery. And he saved her. And then he loved her enough to show her the importance of going and sinning no more. He didn't say, if you would cut that out, we can talk. He loved first. And then he loved enough to help. Second, if that makes sense. Those who have received grace and mercy and get it and grasp it and roll around in it and live in it. Become gracious, merciful people. Would you pray with me and we will close. Father God, thank you so much for designing a plan where you can take ungodly people like us and declare us righteousness by the gift of your grace. God, where we feel like we helped, where we feel like our level of righteousness is what makes you like us more than someone else. Convict us of our pride. Help us repent of that. That we might love the way you love, that we might serve the least of these, understanding it's just like serving you because we're either serving sinners who do bear your very righteousness or we're serving unsaved people who don't but need to. God, make us gracious, merciful people because we've had this incredible, amazing grace poured out on us. We love you, God. We are the ungodly sheep that you have declared righteous. And together we save.